Hi, my name is Cecilia Puna, and welcome to this episode of Brave New Women. All around the world, there are amazing, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Brave New Women is about giving those women a platform and a voice, and it's about changing the way that women are perceived. And it's a way of inspiring all of us to do the things that we've always wanted to do. Today I'm sitting down to talk to Dorothy Hodnut. And Dorothy, when she was younger, wanted to be an anthropologist and an archaeologist. But at the time when she left school, that was not an acceptable career for a woman. And so she became a teacher instead. For 23 years, she was the principal at Holroyd High School in Sydney's western suburbs. And Holroyd is situated in, a, in an area of Sydney where there's a large majority, of, well, there's a large settlement of uh, recent migrants and refugees. Later in her career, Dorothy was heavily involved in the University of Sydney, firstly as a Fellow of Senate for two terms, and then as Pro-Chancellor and Presiding Pro-Chancellor. She's also been an ambassador for RACS, which is the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, which provides legal support to refugees. She was awarded an Order of Australia in 2008 and has also been awarded the Australian Human Rights Medal and honorary doctorates at the University of Western Sydney and at the University of Sydney. Now, this conversation could go in a million different directions, but um, what I'd really like to focus on is Dorothy's work with the refugee and asylum seeker children that she did when she was principal at Holroyd School. And we'll touch as well on the work she's done with the Australian universities uh, since that time. So, Dorothy, welcome. Thank you. Let's start, Dorothy. Um, perhaps you can tell me a bit, little bit about um, Holroyd School and the children that were, that were there. A Holroyd High School is what we call a disadvantaged school. Uh, the um, the majority of the students came from um, both uh, physical poverty and from um, uh, educationally educational poverty. There's something called the index of uh, socio-educational advantage, Ixia, and uh, according to that, looks at finances, amount of education families have had. Uh, various other other factors. Sixty five percent of the students at the school were in the bottom quartile, and eighty four percent of the students were in the two bottom quartiles of socio educational advantage. And that that's because uh, a lot of the students in the school, something like sixty percent of the total enrolment in the school, were of recent refugee or refugee-like background. Australia has quite um, a substantial uh, refugee program suspended at the moment because of the pandemic. And those students often came from places uh, like Afghanistan or West Africa, uh, Iraq, Syria, Iran, um, some from uh, some some increasingly from South America. We had people from Kosovo and the ex-Yugoslavia earlier on. Um, so people, wherever there's there's an issue, you know, people from, um, people from uh, Myanmar uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting school because it also, it also took in local students, uh, most of whom were from working-class backgrounds and some of whom were from underclass backgrounds with a history of... Um, intergenerational unemployment uh, and things of that kind. Um, that, that's, that's, a, uh, that's, a tricky, that's a tricky combination of, 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 um, of students. The interesting thing, of course, about refugees is that they immediately want to better themselves. There's, there's no holding back. And that puts them right at the, at the end of the spectrum to uh, people who are underclass who are often locked into a sort of existential despair from which it's very hard to emerge and um, hard to think of yourself as being employed or or having any real future and things like that. So we had those those two extremes in the school, people who were very, very keen to get their lives back to order and people who were trying to overcome the blight of, uh, of often generations of unemployment. Mm. 
And so how did you deal with those? Did you have different strategies for those two different populations? How did you, as a principal? I, I dealt pragmatically with them. I, I, um, I uh, decided early on in the school that, that we would, that we uh, were, were, as you can imagine, when I went there in 1995, the, the performance of the students was not very, not very good, only uh, fairly low attendance rates and um, a fairly high dropout rates before they completed high school. And uh, the results in the uh, competitive examination system that we have here were not particularly uh, good, only uh, maybe 20% uh, got um, offers to go to university and so on. And, and you would think that at that stage there were, there were a much higher proportion of students who, who spoke English as their mother tongue rather than as another language. We had lower incidence of illiteracy, for example. Uh, so so I, uh, I, I, it was a school that was in a sort of despair. It was in a bad place. And one of the first things I did was to uh, look at uh, this uh, raft of school rules and I, um, I abolished them all, really, except those ones that we, we had to have. <laughs> just, you know, not hit each other. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, went in, I went into something like uh, the best part of a year of negotiating with everybody, with teachers and kids and, and parents and local community if they were interested about what sort of values we might have. And we came up, uh, in short, with the idea of respect and of responsibility, which we put in a little bit later, the, the idea of respect for yourself, respect for others, um, and responsibility for your own actions. And, and so we really, we really pushed those, those ideas. At the same time, at the same time, I, um, I, I was very concerned about the sort of top-down way that the school ran and the, the hierarchy of the school. And so I, I abolished all of the, the structures that had previously operated the school. And obviously there's, a, there's, there's obviously a leadership team in a high school. There's a principal, there, there are deputy principals, there are head teachers um, and so on. But, but, the, but the management of the school was... was Really, uh, a group of um, how can I say older white males who made all the decisions without any obvious uh, accountability to other people in the school. So I flattened I flattened the uh, decision making processes and I introduced participatory decision making, so people could from any part of the school community could join in uh, with decisions uh, because the idea was to create I don't know a leadership of ideas if you like. But I was always there as the where the buck stopped in terms of accountability, as were the deputies and the other executive teachers. But we wanted to draw upon the ideas and the creativity and enthusiasm and the understandings of other people in the school. That was fairly important. And then, of course, then of course it was important to um, it was important to uh, uh, to put the resources of the school into supporting. The learning of the students. So we, I had to shift the whole school around from from being top down, teacher centred, into having a, a focus on the student, um, and 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 uh, and in focusing on the students, it wasn't just that they sat around and were the passive recipients of whatever largesse was being handed out. It was that they actually had to be active in their own learning. They had to be active in. Um, in their own in their own behavior, um, and how did and that how, how did that I, look in practice? So, can you can you give me some examples of of what how the respect and responsibility worked in, in practice? Well, well, uh, it it worked in in the sense. And let me give you an example. You know, teenage teenage boys um, uh, often resolve issues by by hitting each other or doing things of that kind. And I, I would sit with the boys or and say, you know, what happened? Okay. And the deputy principal would do the same thing. So what happened? Um, and then you'd move into, um, you know, apart from comments like, well, that wasn't very bright, was it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, 
I would say I'm not making a judgment. I'm not making a judgment of you as a person in this. You, you, that, that wasn't the right thing to do. What might you have done in this situation which was different? What, what, what could have been, what else could you have done? And you draw out from them some idea of their own responsibility and what happened. And then you got the idea of what do you do then to set it right? Now, you can't take back what's happened. Let's think about what you do to, to get it right so it doesn't happen again. And then I'd say, of course, you know, if you keep doing this sort of thing, I'm, I, I am going to think, you know, despite my not making judgment, I am going to start to think that there's something a bit wrong with you, not so bright, because you keep doing the same thing again. But we would give them the opportunity to, to rectify the situation. And, of course, there were, there were sanctions. The, you, you have to implement government policy in, on things like violence and, and so on, and that suspensions and things like that, but we talked them through all of that. And we introduced we introduced um, peer mediation into the school, and trained a lot of kids who volunteered to become peer mediators, so that we could actually talk through and mediate low level conflicts. Uh, I wish there are a great many among adolescents. I have to say, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's because of the intensity of adolescence. You know, people are young people are trying out being being independent, and that brings them up against uh, authority and things like that. But I always, I always treated the the idea was that that respect flowed every way. It flowed from student to student. It flowed from student to teacher, from teacher to student. It flowed from teacher to teacher because that can be an issue in some school. It flowed from the school to the parents, from the parents back again and things like that. We saw it as, as a very complex web of relationships. It took quite a long time to, to work through that. In the process of doing that, we enrolled a very very uh, disadvantaged boy, an Aboriginal boy who'd been in something like 30 foster homes between oh, the age of three and 13. He was very bright, he was highly intelligent, and he was completely amoral uh, as a result of the, um, the, the of his experiences. He was very hard to deal with. He was in he was in um, he was in a group home nearby, uh, which was run by Marist Youth Care. And in the co- in the process of dealing with that boy, we realised that our approach to um, to children like that and to behaviour issues in generally, general, was very similar to the, the one that the Marist youth had. And they had a, they had a sort of, um, um, of a restorative justice program. And so we embarked upon that program with them, modified to fit our school, uh, because we're a government secular school, not a religious institution. Uh, and we, we ended up as the only public school in New South Wales that had actually implemented that program in the school. Everyone, everyone in the school was, was uh, professionally developed in that. All the teachers and we kept going back to it. And the idea was to, to, to say, can why why what happened? What did you what did you do? Why did you do that? Can you think of a better way? And then how can you restore this? And that that um, uh, that worked really well, and we worked closely with other local bodies, youth groups, and and with the local police, and um, and so on, uh, with with other with other networks to to help uh, our students, many of whom had been through substantial trauma, to to do to 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 sort of get themselves right, and and that that meant that the students themselves could retain their human dignity in these things. They weren't simply being pushed around as happens often in schools. They, they, they actually had a say in things. They contributed, they contributed to, their, to their own development in that sense. And that was really uh, a, a huge cultural shift. It took, as I say, it took years to, to work through. I reckon, I reckon it took 10 years um, uh, for me to, to see 
the first real impact of of the cultural change in the school. Uh, and what were the impacts? What were the impacts? Well, the, impact, the impacts were, were really quite interesting. Um, and and then they're not, not always things that you can measure. The, but you can measure some things. You can measure attendance, for example, which is an issue in impoverished communities everywhere in schools. You can measure retention through to the senior years of high school. You can you can't measure things like um, you can't measure things like whether there's more or less litter in the school playground. And there was very little after a while. And there was very little vandalism. And there was very little graffiti. And the other thing that was really interesting was we saw our suspension rate decline. Um, and that was both short and long suspensions. Long suspensions obviously are for quite serious things and probably there'll always be an incidence of that. Um, but the the, in, at the at the lower level, we saw uh, we saw our suspensions decline for things like uh, physical violence, and more more. We, we we then saw we had more suspensions then for things like um, disobedience. And disobedience you can often talk through, but you know we were able to mediate some of the the violence before it really got away from us. Not really sensible to to um, to suspend uh, children in year seven for for you know getting into getting out of control and 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 getting into a bit of a uh, an altercation. That's silly. You'd better it's far better to actually sit down with them and work through uh, how you can handle this differently. And and then there were things, there were interesting things like the level of noise in the school actually declined. And and so it became really quiet. And there was a, a great deal more. There was a great deal more focus and um, uh, on-task behaviour in class. And I I remember taking having some very important people coming to visit school. And we walk out into into the uh, the schools were an open plan school with built on around open courtyards, uh, freezing in winter, hot in summer anyway some architect's dream idea of how you might have a school. You walk out and there'd be no noise. And this one this one time someone said, are you sure there are children in this school? And I said, yeah, yeah I'm sure. I said, it's fine. So we walk to the nearest classroom and I knock and I open the door and I say, excuse me, uh, can I just say hello to everybody? And the kids all look up from their work and they say, hello, miss. And they put their heads back down again. I'd go on working, and these visitors were stunned that this was happening. It was it became a quiet and respectful place. The the other thing that happened was that we were we we are you are able now looking at the different measuring points of tests and exams, you are able to measure progression. And it's progression in learning, which is the real, the real value, not not high marks. High marks mean you've got a bright kid who's worked hard. And it's got high marks. And in disadvantaged schools, you don't get a tremendous number of kids in the top bands of achievement because of the barriers that they have to learning all along the way and so on. But what we saw, what we could see when we uh, looked at the graphs of, of progress from one learning point to another was that we could see these extraordinary trajectories of learning on, on people. And that, that uh, I then thought, well, do I look at, do I look, I, I have to look at the um, the testing, the national testing program in year 7, 11. It's, it's it, there's a national testing program that starts literacy and numeracy in year 3 and then again in year 5 and in year 7 and in year 9. Um, but for us, something like only 40%, only 40% of the children in year seven had actually done a previous test. We had 50% of the students in the school had been in Australia less than three years. Mm. So they, had, they hadn't necessarily that you couldn't track their progression. So the point at which they did their first test became our line in the sand. That was where we started with them. And we looked at what they could do and couldn't. And I worked in testing 
I worked in testing and examinations for a number of years in, in, in one of my many roles, um, uh, seconded out from teaching into, into that part of, uh, of the Department of Education. And so I, I, I'm fairly au fait with this sort of thing. And what, what, I, what I trained the teachers to do was to do an analysis of, an item analysis of, of the test. So we could see this question generates these responses this proportion of kids, you know, this kid answers this way and things like that. Where, where are the gaps? If there's a pattern that we see across all of the students or the pattern for one child and things, we're able to do that analysis and then plug the gaps because a lot of our kids had a lot of gaps to plug. But what we, what we could see was this terrific progression as they got more assured in English and as they're learning, they got more confident in, in their learning. And, of course, I I decided I was... I was going to aim for success, not failure. I was going to, and I was going to make sure that I removed every possible barrier to success along the way. So, 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 sort of an, an impact of all of these things. By the time they got to year twelve, even if they'd only been in the country a relatively short time, what we were seeing was was uh, an increase in 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 the in the actual academic performance of the students, and so. So it was really important to do a number of things. One was not to dumb down the curriculum in any way. The, 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 it was to offer a broad range of, um, of subjects, both so that we could, we could have both an academic strand, we could have an arts and creat creative learning strand, we could have a technology, if you like, a, um, a vocational education training uh, strand in in learning and people could mix and match those or move between. The idea was to maximize the effect at the higher school certificate. So that you gave people more options after that. But one of the things a lot of poor kids don't have is a range of options. You know, they, their schools may not offer the, the right range of courses and subjects and at the right level. And um and then they're sort of they're sort of siphoned off into into lesser roles, and that becomes then um, uh, a very predictable destiny for them. So, so my that, 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 that it was a combination of a whole heap of things, and then in um, we 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 started to see uh, uh, a rise in the number of people getting university offers, and so we went up. We were we were operating at around thirty percent, which was the which was the level for the main population of Australia. So disadvantaged kids were coming in around 15%, so only about 15% of disadvantaged kids in about 2007 were, were getting into university, but about 30% of kids across the whole population. So, so that's, those are the people who complete school. The completion of schooling is around... 80%, I think, in Australia. So it's, it's not as high as it should be. And, um, and then uh, Professor Denise Bradley uh, did a, a review of tertiary education and she looked, she looked back down into what was happening in secondary schools as well. And she, as a result of that, she, she set some targets. One was to increase the participation of disadvantaged students to 20% by 2020 from the 15% it was. And the other was to increase the participation of, of all students to 40% from 30%. We were already at 30%, so punching a little bit above our weight. So I came back to school at the beginning, I think it was 2008 or 2009, and said to students on the first day back, well, you know, I've been, um, I've been reading a report by Professor Bradley, I said, and she says, it's important to get that, Professor Bradley, they think male, and you then say, she says, she says <laughs> that young Australians, that 40% of young Australians should go to university. And so I think that from now on, 40% of you should go to university. I said 30% of last year's HSC class have uh, got offers to university. That's good. But from now on, it has to be 40%. And they must have been listening that the end of that year, we, I was counting the university offers coming in, and we went, we went up 35, 37, 39, and I sent, a, I sent an email to my boss, my director, saying, good grief, you know, we're up around 39%. And then it went higher. <coughs> and 
And it climbed from then on, 40%, 45%. Sometimes we slipped back a little bit because in some years we had far more children who'd come from illiterate backgrounds and things and, and, and so on. But by the last three years uh, that I was principal, we were averaging around 60% of first-round university offers. That is nearly nearly 30% above the mainstream. They they weren't getting high marks. They weren't getting high marks for the most part. They were getting the marks they needed to get the foot into the university. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I aimed at. I didn't aim for, you know, um, high flyers on the merit list. If you got on the merit list, that was good. That was that was cool. But I was aiming for the sort of sound results that get those kids from those backgrounds on 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 the road to um, uh, to 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 social progress uh, and so on. Because once they're there, they they don't look back. Mm. They don't, they don't come back. They they keep going, and their children will be educated too. And that that's what education does it's 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 like it's like throwing it's like throwing a stone into the future and uh and it keeps repeating itself is those 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 young people from such disadvantaged backgrounds i know are sitting down reading to their children they tell me on facebook what they're doing they've they're turning up on you know writers week in at school dressed as dressed as some character from a, a children's book that they've read to their children. I used to say to the girls, you've got to read to your children. From the moment they're born, you've got to read to them. They've got to understand about reading. It's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, that's a sort of like a pitch you make into the future. That's a great mm-hmm. thing about education. It's all about the future. <laughs> I, mean, that, I just find that incredibly moving that these children from such disadvantaged backgrounds are we're getting way above even the mainstream percentage of students that we're getting into university. Yeah. I and mean, that's that's just so moving. They weren't, of course, for the most part, getting into law and medicine and 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 things like that. But some of them were were, moved, were transferring, so they'd start in one area and then they'd be able to transfer when their marks came in. Mm. It was very interesting to see how many of them did so well at university. As far as I know. We lost almost no one. There was almost no dropout from tertiary students. Mm. And I, I'm still in touch with so many of them and, and I'm pleased to be. Mm. But then we did you the see the same? Did you see the same? Was it were, were you getting the same results from the, the kids who were recent migrants and the kids, as you were saying, from the the populations Ev- that were everyone, everyone in the school benefited from the from the the positive ethos of the school. Every, everyone was the beneficiary of the programs that we set up, uh, including the ones specific to refugees, um, who did who did need a lot of intervention, including health intervention and so on. So everyone who went to that school ended up ploughing along, you know, wanting mm-hmm. wanting to do better, and that included that included. Um, uh, the underclass kids. I, I remember a family that came to us who came from another state and they were escaping from massive abuse in the family, every kind of abuse that you might imagine. The, uh, the mother had never been employed. I think her mother had never been employed. The, kid, the kids were uh, sad and grubby and um, uh, not, not really, uh, you know, not really uh, uh, turned on, and and we said, you know, I, I had an open door, so people would come in and say, "Miss, there's something you should know," or or uh, they just come. Can I have a talk? And I I always stop whatever I was doing for a kid, or for a teacher or parent. I mean, you know, you can do you can do your administration after school, and um, and so uh, I remember one of the girls in this family saying to me, I said, well, what do you think you're going to do after you finish? You're going to finish school. That was the first thing. You're going to finish school, aren't you? You know, we want you to finish school. We want you to get an HSC. So, okay, we'll stay on at school. And then, and then it's, 
well, well what do you think you might might do after school well I might I might do child care you know you think I said I this kid hey, come on I said you're too you're too bright just to do child care why don't you why don't you think about becoming a kindergarten teacher little children okay but you have professional qualification professional work you know all of that that'd be really good oh she said but she hadn't thought about that so you then you then sort of put the idea in, and we were we were part of we were part of a marvelous program called. I mean, we we I signed us up to everything that happened that you could possibly imagine. I mean, you know, uh, we were part of a mar- marvelous program called What Opera, which was a philanthropic program uh, run through Opera Australia to introduce um, to introduce uh, disadvantaged kids to to opera, and. Um, and the kids had six weeks to make up, make up their own opera, uh, and then and then they also got to go off to, to Opera Australia, and they got to see what it was like backstage, and and they saw they saw uh, they saw an opera being bumped uh, beforehand, and then they they went to opera, and this the, the girls from this family got involved in, in what opera, and and that was transformational for them. Suddenly, suddenly they were there in the opera house. Suddenly, they they were part of a bigger cult, mainstream culture, and 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 it it gave them a glimpse of what could be their lives. It helped in their development of aspiration. I mean, we just had to raise the expectations of of every child in the school, and we had to raise. The expectations of their parents. I had to raise the expectations of the teachers, so I, I didn't have people saying, as someone said to me the first year I was there, head teacher said, "Oh, this is the last good HSC class we'll have in this school," and I said, "Why is that?" And he said, "Oh, because of the imports." I'm not kidding. That was the term he used, and so you had, you know, it was it was a whole raft of things that had to be dealt with, and I had to build. I had to build a sympathetic base. Uh, at the time that I left the school, I think we we shared a genuine common sense of purpose in the school, and and a genuine commitment uh, to to the future for every child in our care. Um, I mean, it just it's just it's it's not one thing that's going to make it work. It's a whole raft of things that you've put together. You have to have to keep thinking about what you're going to do. It's um, it requires a certain amount of um, agility. That's one of the terms that politicians like to use these days. Agile, you know, this is a latest sort of thing. Agile, but but in fact, if you're if you're going to really make a difference in a, in a school setting, uh, agility uh, and thinking off the square is really important. So. Whatever. When you had a um, when you had a uh, a migrant child, a refugee child, come to the school, um, let's say they came into the school in the middle of the year, were there specific things that you needed to do for that child? Yes, we had we had in the the school the school uh, had the 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 main high school which ran from from year seven to twelve, and we had. Uh, uh, an intensive English centre as well in the school. Now, intensive English centres are very much a New South Wales thing. There are about 14 of them in New South Wales, most of them in all but one in Sydney. No, two now outside Sydney. Um, uh, and those are places where high school-aged children from a non-English-speaking background learn English. They learn the English they need for educational purposes as well as social purposes. For up to a year, and in some cases where children were uh, coming from um, conflict and they they were illiterate and they had mental health issues and things of that kind, could be five terms. So four terms was the max usually, and then we could apply for an additional term. It's a Commonwealth-funded program, but administered through the state, and so and so the the those the students stayed as many terms as they needed to actually be able to function within the mainstream. Some of the older students went on uh, not to high school but to um, to TAFE, to uh, technical colleges afterwards, uh, but most of them came into high school. And so they, they had 
they had a, a, a mix of preparation. It was it was English language learning. It was uh, specific to um, to uh, educational needs. It was also it was also um, literacy, uh, where where children came illiterate or with very low literacy, they had uh, very special needs that are separate to uh, and different from the um, uh, from English language learning needs. And so those those issues were all dealt with uh, in that period of time. The school shared uh, we we shared the facilities. So it wasn't. Set, set aside in a different part of the school. It was within the school. and um, But the children weren't in the same class as the mainstream. And, and I, also had a, a, I also had a special needs uh, unit in the school where children who had intellectual disabilities, where we had three classes of children who had uh, intellectual disabilities, uh, one, two, two classes of children with autism, uh, and one for what's called multifactorial uh, issues. The um, some of the children in the autistic class were uh, gifted intellectually, but um, uh, of course two dimensional in in lots of ways facing the world. And um, we were able to um, integrate them in some classes in a couple of cases into English classes. With a, with a support person with them because of the behaviours and uh, and in maths and science, with the aim again of getting those who could who were capable of going on to tertiary education into tertiary education where they could be looked after uh, at the university at the university level. And we also ran a number of of programs with universities and. Um, and there was a program that we ran with big business and uh, and so on. I mean, I just I just uh, I just I just saw school as opening up every possible uh, pathway that you could for our students because their families couldn't do that for them. So we we had to be their leg up in the world, really, and and we had to we had to sort of bounce along with them <laughs> through that. There were some tricky moments in all that. I can I can assure you. I mean, Dorothy, were you doing all of this yourself? Because it sounds like you had you had a school with um, populations from, um, you know, say underclass, called them underclass populations. You have migrant children. You've got the children with disabilities. You're running these programs, getting them with business with universities, and it sounds like the job of fifty people. It was. We had a staff of um, we had a staff of over sixty teachers, and uh, we had we had a support staff of around about thirty people, who some of whom were um, uh, were were uh, people who who were bilingual, uh, for example, uh, Farsi Dari speakers who could work with the Afghan kids in the classroom and negotiate with the parents. A lot of what we did. Uh, was was through that medium uh, of of uh, interpreters and uh, and so on, often often more with interpreters than in written in written language because a lot of our parents couldn't read or write in their own language, mm-hmm. um, and we we'd have to we'd have to get in additional people, you know, it's for as as need arose. So um, when we had. Uh, uh, a population of children from Africa. I remember we had some difficulty in finding uh, a Dinka speaker to work with us because, because I can assure you the Dinka speakers didn't speak anything else and <laughs> communication could be a little bit strange. I worked with remarkable people. The, um, the, the, the teachers and the uh, other people, as other stuff I worked with, uh, were incredibly committed and dedicated people. And together we worked through so many ideas. So, you know, I'm one of those people who I generate a lot of ideas. So I really need people who are quite practical to work with me to get them all up and running. And and that that works. So we we had this mix in a school of of, of ideas and the practical application of them. I, I can think very practically too, uh, as I did as I did when it became clear that some of our asylum seeker students 
were getting sufficient marks to get into university, but because of government policy, mightily discriminated against, uh, they're not eligible for any support at university and have to pay full international student fees uh, with no chance of deferral of those fees. So, so I set up a program of, of negotiating with the universities for individual students. In fact, I'm still doing that. And um, uh, then I thought, well, if it's happening here, it would probably be happening in other schools. So I then, I then sent out um, emails through the, 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 the principal's network saying, if you have anyone who's an asylum seeker that is on this, these different visas or no visas, who is competitive, then, then let me know with their permission when, when you get their HSC marks in. Uh, and I will try and negotiate scholarships to university for them, which is what I did. I set up, I also set up in, in the, in over the last uh, 20 years, I've set up three, three scholarship funds. One called Friends of Zainab after the, the marvellous Zainab Kabi, um, uh, who needed to be helped. So that's now with the Public Education Foundation. It is now an Australia-wide fund. It has helped around 500 young refugees and asylum seekers since it started in the last two years of school and the first two years of university. It's currently got about 130 young people on scholarships in around Australia. I set up one through the National Foundation from Australia for Australian Women, which operated at our school level, and I still need to resolve that one. And since I retired, I've set up another fund through the Sydney Community Foundation. And that, that doesn't include all the kids that we helped at the school itself uh, and so on. So, you know, I, I've been getting people successfully into university uh, for a while. I, I, I managed to convince the Department of Education before I retired that they should take over that task since they knew where everyone was. And um, and they they did that. A, a marvelous teacher from my school, who we'd appointed our head teacher refugee support, went into the department and set up the template for the program, and that's now operating. That's been operating since 2017, and is getting young asylum seekers into university. But but I continue to to um, have that role, and I'm now starting to see it with people. Who've already who've got a degree and who are now moving into further degrees, and mm. that is really quite exciting um, because you know that's that whole thing. You can't take someone's education away from them. Mm. They will have that qualification. They will they will have the means the means to um, continue uh, uh, through through um, their their life in Australia. I would think I would think that uh, many of our asylum seekers will end up becoming Australian citizens simply because it will be too difficult not to grant them that after living in Australia mm. for such a long time and mm. having marrying and having children. I mean, those, those things are going to happen. Children grow up mm. and, and uh, governments can't put people on ice forever. Dorothy, mm. could you, um, do you have maybe one or two of the greatest success stories of these children? Yes, I do. There's a there's a, a marvelous young man of um, Afghan Hazara background, Bashir Yusufi. Um, Bashir uh, uh, was orphaned when he was 12, and he escaped from Afghanistan uh, because the fear was that uh, an uncle spirited him out of Afghanistan. The fear was that he would be killed as well. Uh, and uh, he he was sort of launched <laughs> on his trajectory across the world when he was thirteen. And he, the thought of a thirteen-year-old uh, crossing the world alone is is quite extraordinary. He ended up on um, on a boat to Australia uh, when he was about fifteen. He was um, uh, he was uh, interned in uh, Darwin in a uh, an immigration uh, detention centre, and he's he's a he's he's an extraordinary person. He's he's one of the few genuine autodidacts I've ever met, and he 
someone gave him a dictionary, a really simple dictionary, a children's dictionary, and he determined he would teach himself English and he'd teach himself to read and write. Never been to school. So, so he starts off and his, his aim is to learn 15 new words every day. And you know he's kept that up. He's been, he's now must be 30. He's, he's been learning 15 new words every day. He has most extraordinary vocabulary. Anyway, he was with another uh, young chap called Mosin in the, in the detention centre. They both learned English by bouncing off each other. And then, of course, because they were, uh, they were um, unaccompanied minors, they were released uh, and they ended up in Brisbane they didn't stay very long in Brisbane. They made their way to Sydney. These are these these this is this is a 15, these are 15, 14 or 15 year olds, you know. Like they arrive in Sydney and uh, they're sort of roughly looked after in, in at a distance by someone. And they, they came and enrolled with us. And um uh and Bashir very quickly uh showed what he was made of. First of all, turning up to school, impeccably dressed school. Living with Mosin in a flat somewhere, looking after themselves, these two kids, uh, while we keep a, a sort of watchful eye, you know, are you getting enough to Yes, yes. And I can iron, says Bashir. They come to school, starched and ironed and pressed and, you know, everything. He 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 became uh, vice captain of the school in year 12. He became... Uh, he, he then uh, represented the school on the, the local student representative council for the, and then became a regional representative and so on. He got, he got in, he was along the way, he had, he had, he had acquired permanent protection along the way. Uh, and he, he then, he then got involved, uh, he got involved with, I think it was Amnesty and became, uh, and became a sort of a, a speaker for Amnesty. He got a he 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 completed his HSC. He, he didn't do too badly. He got into university, but decided to defer, and he went to um, he he went to a college and did accountancy. So he got a diploma in accounting, and then and then he he got he he went back down to Canberra and he got into an economics and accounting degree course at uh, the Australian National University. In the course of all of this, he decides that he he really doesn't want to be an accountant. He wants to be a diplomat. So, so he, he he changes into a course in international relations, and uh, and um, uh, he he completed that degree uh, at the end of twenty nineteen. Um, I couldn't go to his graduation. I'm in touch with him all the time. I couldn't go because I was in Spain at the time. And um, and he is now doing a master's in international relations and diplomacy at uh, ANU with the aim of becoming um, becoming a diplomat. He's he got involved with um, career seekers. I'm a, I'm now a director of career seekers. They help uh, sponsor, uh, mentor. Uh, People, uh, refugees and asylum seekers, into the into the professional workforce, and he got he had the chance to do some internships. So he's now working uh, in the in the federal department of finance uh, at a professional level. And he's doing this degree. He's he's sponsored a young woman to come to Australia and has married her, and they have a new baby. And I have no doubt that Bashir will turn up somewhere as an Australian diplomat at some point, which is a huge, a huge journey that he's undertaken. Along the way, he needed to become an Australian citizen. And of course there were barriers put up, impediments put up to people who had been asylum seekers uh, in the queue for citizenship. I wrote a letter to the Minister for Immigration supporting Bashir's request for citizenship. And I was there with him when he got his citizenship. Mm -hmm. That was so important. And he's, wow. he's, you know, I mean, that's a long journey. There, there are so many like that. I, I'm, I'm thinking of another Afghan girl, Sakana, who uh, was the first person in her family ever to go to school. I mean, don't, don't, she was, what, 13 when she came to Australia. 
no one had ever been to school, not a parents, no, no one, ever, ever. And she she went on, she was our school captain by the time she finished. She was uh, very uh, articulate. She is a very articulate young woman. She went on to study nursing at the University of Technology in Sydney. I was at her graduation along with her mum, who can't speak English uh, and can't read or write English, but was so proud of what her daughter had achieved. And uh, Sakaina, Sakaina is um, specialising in midwifery, I believe. Um, she's, she has thoughts about becoming a doctor and doing mm. medicine. She may well do that, but in the meantime, she's got married. She's in a very sort of modern marriage. She has two gorgeous children whom she adores, and she's, and she's working in nursing. Uh, that, that, is, that is such a journey, you know, and her younger sisters have gone to university, and um, it's, it's, it's like a liberation. It's the, it, it liberates people from, from what, they, what they might have been. We could, we could underestimate what people could do. We could lower our expectations, and people will rise to those low expectations, you know, but we can raise our expectation. We can take away barriers. Yeah. To, uh, to think, you know, people needed school shoes. I bought them school shoes. They need to go to the dentist. We went to the dentist. If they, if they, if they uh, got chucked out of home and they needed to find a new place, we paid their rental bond. It, it was, it was just what, what, if, what you need is what you need. But you've got to do, you've got to do the hard work too. It's, in the end, I'm not there sitting those exams for you. You've got to come up to things. But I will support you 100% of the way. And if you've been, if you've if you've had a troubled past, I'm not going to judge you by that past. I'm, I remember saying this girl sitting in my office and saying, she said, I, I want to do this and I want to do that. I don't want to be like I am anymore, Azina. Uh, and she says to me, since I've got a past. This is oh, this is a 16-year-old telling me she's got a past. <laughs> I, I said, I said, I'm not interested in your past, I'm interested in your future. And she stopped and she said, oh, and I said, it's what you do from now on that's important, not, not what I'm not going to judge you by, you know, being a pest in the past. And, and she, she went on. She went on to get, she went, she went on, we, we ran um, that year. We were the only school in Australia. It was, the, it was the 10th anniversary of the Beijing Platform for Women's Rights. Uh, there were uh, there were consultations with women around the world in that tenth year to see if anything had happened. I'm afraid to say not a lot. But uh, we we held a, they were held in Australia. They were brokered through the University of New South Wales and uh, uh, run by a woman from Tasmania. And uh, they were called caravans in Australia. I heard they were happening, and I signed us up. And we ran a, we ran such a consultation at school. We invited girls from other schools to come, and we had some speakers. And it was really good. And Azina got involved uh, with that, as did as did a number of other girls who later became uh, quite public figures. And um, uh, we um, she went from there. Uh, to the uh, there was a national conference held at Uni of New South Wales, and we we over a week we sent heaps of girls off off to that, and teachers too because some of our teachers needed a bit of consciousness raising, and um, and then Azina was chosen to be the youth representative for Australia at the Asia Pacific conference in Bangkok. So we we actually because she came from a poor family, we just do a bit of fundraising there. Uh, because I couldn't use school funds to sponsor her. So we, we fundraised her uh, the costs for her going to Bangkok, and she represented Australia very well. And so she, she was then chosen to go to the United Nations, the Commission on the Status of Women, as part of the reporting back to the Commission on, on, the, uh, on the consultations, the worldwide consultations. So Azina, by this stage, was completing her HSC. Um, and. Uh, so she went, she just, when she went, she had just turned 18. She just got Australian citizenship, her passport, and, and we fundraised for her to go to, um, to New York 
And she went and she took part. And, and in the meantime, she had been, she'd been a member of the local SES, the, um, um, the emergency service. She, she'd been Auburn Young Citizen of the Year. She, she had sponsored, sponsored a child through World Vision. She was working with World Vision as a, as a, um, uh, uh, as, as a volunteer. She then went for World Vision and later, and later the, the Red Cross to a number of countries to talk to groups of young women about how they could, they could get um, uh, active uh, on their own behalf. Uh, she 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 works now for the Red Cross. She's worked for <coughs> the immigration people, home affairs here in Australia. She's worked for World Vision. She's worked for a number of NGOs, um, and that that's that's it. Uh, you know, I said, and that all comes from that moment when I said to her, "I'm not interested in your past. I'm interested in your future." Mm, mm, uh, mm. And those those. Those moments are, are, can be transformational for kids. It's really important that we not make judgments about people. That that we give young people every opportunity to to just expand and keep growing and mm. you know being themselves. Mm. Really, I've got mm. so many stories that I could I could tell you, which are great success stories. Mm. And mm. It's everything you know the the kid from the really rough. Um, a Anglo family here, one of those sort of uh, really tough, brought up in a single parent family, poor as that. Uh, she's a teacher now. She's mm. gone on to be a teacher. It's a blonde, sort of sour-faced looking girl who was really cranky a lot of the time and caused infinite pain to some of her teachers. And, and, and she stayed until she did the HSC. She stayed and she got in on on um, on special consideration for people from disadvantaged background, and she's now a primary teacher. I mean, that sort of that that is real life changing stuff, mm. and mm. and it, and it's no looking back. They keep going. That's that's what it, that's what it's about. You know, you don't you're not in there for yourself. You're in there to make a difference to those kids. And I'm uh, I'm particular. I, I've taught kids from all social backgrounds uh, and I'm still in touch with hundreds of them but the but the but the important the really important ones are the kids who don't have anything else going for them who really do need every resource that we can apply to them to make them self-sufficient give them resilience give them a way forward to, to raise their expectations and things. They, they they have to come to the party. It's not just handing it out to them. They they actually had to work hard. It's like a tough love process that we went through with them, you know. Dorothy, this I, I think that's a, a great place to to end the end this interview. Um I mean what I'm left with is just huge admiration for your energy huge admiration for your drive, um, for your willingness to buck the system, your willingness oh, yeah. to just do whatever whatever it takes to make sure that these, those kids have a better future. Yeah, and I don't think they make people like me principals anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. And also, also what really strikes me is just um, your incredible humanity. But, um, yes, well, yeah. And it's... Um, so I just wanted to reflect that back to you and, and say, I mean, if only all, all school principals were, were like you, I think what a, what a different world it would be. What a different world it would be. Yes, yeah. Mm. There are so many children who are lost children mm. you know, in so, this world. So many. Tens of millions of children who will never go to school. Mm. Uh, and you know, there are, gosh, there are, there are nearly eighty million displaced people in the world right now, of whom almost half are children, mm. and and the reality is that those children, uh, unless they get resettled, and the resettlement is around you know one hundred and fifty, one hundred and sixty thousand people a year out of that number, um, unless they get resettled, they have got Buckleys of ever getting near a school. Mm. And so there's this huge well of human misery and 
and and the loss of potential that's out there. Uh, the pandemic's only made it worse. Uh, so many of you're much more likely to be you're much more likely to be illiterate if you're female. Those stats that are, are really telling: seventy percent of the world's illiterates are female. You know, mm. so you want to be able to do whatever you can. I remember someone, another kid, laughing at Azina once and saying she's out saving the world one person at a time. And yet, sometimes that's all we can do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you, Dorothy, for your time. And thank you for all you've done. It's been, it's been a delight to speak to you. Mm, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brave New Women. Certain podcast sites such as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts or Podchaser let you leave a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more people will listen and the more these women's stories will be shared. So I'd really appreciate it if you could. Thanks for listening.